Hi, Dan. Hey, John. How are you? Good. Good. How's it going over there it's in going, uh, Texas? It's going land. good. It's going all right. Same. Same. No. Um. No complaints. Mm-hmm. Other than what everyone's complaining about. So. Yeah. No complaints except what everyone's complaining about. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Yes. Mm-hmm. So what's new? Uh, well, what's yeah. new, new over there? What's new way up there? Uh, well, let's see what's new. Um, yeah, you know, um, not that much, Dan. No, no, no. Can't say that there's a lot new. My sister came over yesterday and we talked about our childhoods, which we do. Oh yeah. Um, and we hadn't seen her in a few weeks because when my contractor got sick with coronavirus, it sent the whole family running back into quarantine from one another. Oh yeah. I I imagine it would. So we hadn't seen her in a while and, and, uh, so it was nice to see a little bit of sister sort of, Mm -hmm. but, uh, otherwise just in the, just in the rut, you know, Seattle has been really, rocked by Seattle has a lot going on there, man. A lot going on there. It's what we do best here. Um, Protest stuff. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, that's why you live there really. If you think about it, but protest in solidarity too is, is, uh, is like a Seattle quality. Yep. Um, and then once we've engaged the police and they, the police here, have a very very bad record and it seems you would think uh, with this as aware as you paint seattle out to be and 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 uh we talked in the past about the wokeness uh you know you gave me the impression at least the impression that seattle was would would be good at that and so you would think mm. that they would be good at that they'd be better you would yeah. you would think that seattle would be so what's why isn't it why isn't it the best better well um a lot of people have asked that question mm-hmm. you know the seattle police force is very diverse um it's not as diverse as it could be but um there are I think more Asian cops on the Seattle police force than anywhere else. Um, Even more than there, like a California, San Francisco type. I thought you were, I thought you were going to say even more than Asia. And I was going to laugh because that would have been <laughs> funny. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I felt like that was too easy. <laughs> uh, like in 2019, 40% of the new hires were people of color. Um, there's a, there's a big LGBTQ contingent of police in the, um, in the Seattle police department. There are a lot of women. It's a, it's relatively a diverse police force politically. They work, you know, the, the upper cops work closely with the mayor. We have community policing commissions and um 
we have done a lot of work here to do what you say, or, you know, as you say, make the police the best, most touchy feely, squeezy police that you could have. Um, you know, Seattle has a lot of diversity, but the city itself is kind of, I mean, one of the things about Seattle is it's a middle class city and always was until Mm -hmm. very recently, extremely middle class. There were a couple of rich neighborhoods where the lumber barons lived and the, you know, the like railroad barons, right? right? And the, then the Boeings and the Nordstrom's. But other than that, Seattle is mile after mile after mile of bungalows. And even in the poor neighborhoods, a lot of, uh, there, there were never any, there's never any huge mile after mile public housing projects. There, there were single family homes. And uh, even in the, even in the lower, lower middle-class neighborhoods that people own their own homes. They were small homes and the banks wouldn't loan them any money because they were redlined, but they had, they owned the house. So when what you does, drive uh, around, what does yeah. the term redlined mean? Oh, well, yeah. Not everyone knows redlined. this. So we have people listening in other countries where they don't, they don't talk about that. Although they, they, they may have those problems in other countries, with, by under by other names, but redlining were uh, was a process across the United States of basically drawing imaginary lines on maps of cities and saying on this side of the line we're going to rent and sell houses to people of color, and on this side of the red line we're not going to. And it was a it was a a uh, kind of a p- practice of collusion between banks, real estate agents, city councils, governments, um, fire departments. I mean, everybody was kind of colluding at all the institutions colluding to just make sure. And it was, you know, it was in that kind of paternalistic way. It's, they're not discriminating against anyone. They just want to make sure that black people live with black people and white people live no, with no white discrimination people. though. None whatsoever. It's not a bad thing. They're just trying to do it to make everyone comfortable. And if you were black and tried to buy a house in a neighborhood that was on the wrong side of the red line, you would never know. No one would ever say like, Oh, you can't do that. I'm sorry. You know, you can't buy that house up here, they would, they would do everything they could to work toward you not, you know, the banks would say, ah, we can't give you that loan on that house. It's just a little too, you just don't quite have the collateral or the real estate agent would say, I don't think that that's the right listing. It was all, you know, it was done in this. If it, if, if you were insisted, if you were like, I want to buy that house, they would say no. But, but the, but the goal of it was to like, keep you in your place. Right. And it, and redlining persisted here in Seattle in until, I mean, persisted as a, as a, uh, an actual practice, not like some tiny little, um, thing on a couple of streets, but you know, that was still a thing until the seventies. And that's true across the United States, you know, even after everything, 
uh, all, all the civil rights stuff in the 50s and 60s, there was still this just sort of quiet collusion. And, and in some ways, the most pernicious aspect of, well, it's all pernicious, but one of the pernicious aspects of it was that banks would not give home improvement loans or, or small business loans in redlined districts. And it's why when you drive through those areas, the houses are all in poor shape and why the, you know, small businesses seem so ad hoc. There was not a line of credit. And so much of what, so much of why America, why American neighborhoods are prosperous, why people get to add on a, 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 a room to their house, you know, it's all that banks extend these small lines of credit to people based on the equity they have in their house. Right. And, you know, whether or not it's a good idea to take a, a loan out on, on the, based on the equity you have in your house, um, oftentimes it is, you know, oftentimes that's how you even start your small business. Right. Because owning a house is, is like the, 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 primary way a middle-class person establishes a toehold in wealth and ownership. Right. But in black neighborhoods, even if you owned your own home, you couldn't translate that equity into uh, like economic opportunity for yourself. Right. Because the banks said, and they didn't say like, we're not going to do that because you're black. They would say, we're, we don't feel like that is a good risk for us right. because the we don't feel like that neighborhood that there's that there's any equity really there. And so it was a self-perpetuating cycle. We're not going to loan money because we don't feel like the we feel the risk is too great and then the neighborhood falls f- further because no one can repair their gutters. Right. And then the banks, you know, just double down on it. And pretty soon you have, you have neighborhoods like you do in the South end in Seattle here for, for decades that were just like, even though the homeowners did everything they could to care for them, they just didn't have the resources. So the thing about the cops here is that, and, and I've been, I've been singing this song this past week, um, is that the police union is, you know, promotes a culture and the police department has a internal culture and police in general have a fraternal culture. Um, and it, it almost doesn't matter how many female police officers you have. It's still a fraternal culture that absolutely resists being made into a touchy feely community responsive, um, like outreach oriented organization. And the Seattle police department has a long history of excessive violence of aggressive policing of, um, people of color, right? Such that the federal government, the department of justice imposed a consent decree on the Seattle police department, not quite 10 years ago where the feds basically came in and said, you can't manage yourselves. Mm-hmm. 
there have been so many instances of excessive violence that have gone through your internal process of review and, and, um, you know, you've spit out one time after another, no prosecution, every, every single police shooting comes back justified. Um, and so the, so we're going to take over the department of justice and manage or monitor the Seattle police department. It was a huge embarrassment to them. Really? And in fact, just recently, the cops sued the city, a group of cops sued the city saying that they, they wanted the consent decree lifted. They felt like they'd met all the conditions and they wanted the consent decree lifted and wanted to be free again to ride their machines and not get hassled by the man. And then this just happened. And I think yesterday the, um, the district attorney quashed their suit and reimposed the, or, you know, the consent decree was still imposed. They, he just took away, um, took away their suit and said, clearly, clearly we still need department of justice oversight. <laughs> Thing is right now, the department of justice is not really in the finest shape either. Mm-hmm. It's a cascading chocolate fountain of hot garbage. <laughs> it, it, it. <laughs> a cascading chocolate fountain of garbage. Yeah, hot garbage. It would need to be sort of hot chocolate. Yeah. So I guess the I guess the the hotness of the garbage is built in. Yeah. Uh, but it it's a it's to our to our shame and consternation that of all the places in the world that Seattle has not managed to to uh, build a, a police force that re, that reflects our city values. And the fact that Seattle can't do it, having tried and tried and tried, is, I think, at least from our perspective, evidence of like the systemic corruption of that kind of police force, that kind of policing. It's very difficult to enact uh, really like effective reform. Because the police institution is built around the idea that they are loyal to themselves first, that they defend themselves first against the city. They defend themselves against the politicians. They defend themselves against the citizens. And so the sense of them working for us the sense we have of politicians working for us and then we get really mad because they're not doing what we want and we say, you work for us. And the politicians go, I'm here to tell you that I'm doing what I'm, I'm going to do the best I can for you. But you know, politicians are, are elected and political people are appointed and we can remove them from office if they super duper disappoint us. Mm-hmm. And city employees have jobs. They do work for us, but they're working people who are working at a difficult job. And when you go into the DMV and you're mad about the service you're getting, 
you know, it's a, it's the kind of, it's the fact that big bureaucracies that, that don't have a ton of accountability built into them and they have a lot of job security, you know, they just kind of produce like a slow moving machine, but police are a police have worked it really well. They, during the, during the, you know, middle part of the century, uh, the police did a, did it like a little switcheroo where they presented themselves as, um, as a labor organization, right? I mean, they're, the police are at least typically were middle-class or, or working class people. Mm-hmm. And when they felt kind of under attack by, um, by city governments during the labor movement years, they, they naturally said, we also need a union. We need to organize as, as labor. Uh, we need the power of collective bargaining mm-hmm. in order to get good contracts and to, um, and to not get forced to work unpaid overtime and all these, you know, like basic union, um, labor union stuff. But having formed those unions, they had this additional thing, which was that they were carrying guns. And cops are the people that that get employed by the ownership class to break the strikes of other labor unions. I mean, cops aren't pro-labor necessarily, right? The first thing that a owner does when the strike closes his thing down is call the cops in. Or the, maybe, you know, the last thing that they do, but you know, the police are not working on behalf of them, the workers typically. Right. So they weren't like, they weren't especially natural bedfellows with other unions, but increasingly they use that union power to, to, to set the rules for their own conduct. For instance, if you say, we don't want the police to uh, pull their guns on every person that appears to have a toy car in their hand. Like every time a kid is walking down the street with his hoodie pulled up, and when a, a policeman says to him through a microphone, hey, take your hands out of your pockets, and the kid doesn't, for whatever reason, maybe he's got a mouse in there. Maybe he does have a pistol. <laughs> Maybe he's got a hole in his uh, front pants pocket and he's jacking himself off. Who knows? There's a million reasons why a kid doesn't take his hands out of his pockets the first time you tell him or the fifth time you tell him. People are weird. The, the, the fact that he has his hands in his pockets doesn't necessarily mean that you should pull your pistol out and point it at him and scream at him to get on the ground. So we would like the police to stop doing that signed citizens of the town. Right. And the police union comes back and makes it a workplace safety issue. If we, if you're asking us to not pull our guns, right. It's not just that maybe this kid does have a gun in his pocket and he turns around and he pulls it out and it's not a mouse. It's a gun and he shoots the police. 
And if they'd had their guns out, they would have been safe. It's not just that they say that. What they say is, if you are, if you ask us as police to think, to, to, to look at that kid and evaluate him, evaluate his posture and evaluate his, his position in the, on the sidewalk and how he's carrying himself and what he says to us when he turns around and says, I don't have a gun. I have a mouse in my pocket. If you ask us to do all that complicated listening and evaluating and looking before we pull our guns out, what you're creating is a fog of war for us. You're making the situation very confusing for us. And it's that confusion that puts us at risk because while we're sitting there trying to hippie evaluate people with psychology um, they're pulling mice out of their pockets all around us. And so if you, so the whole premise of community policing, the whole premise of um, asking the cops to take a second before they do anything or to try and diffuse situations by talking or even get to know their get to know the people on their beat. The unions presented all of that or pushed back against all of that as workplace safety. And they used a lot of the civil rights law, anti-discrimination law, um, laws that were meant to protect workers from being coerced into unsafe practices at their right. job. Right. And they flipped it on their heads and they made it about the fact that the, that the cops needed to be constantly in a posture where they assumed that everyone walking around with a mouse in their pocket actually had a gun. <laughs> and so the, so culturally it, um, they're trained to, and within their culture are uh, rewarded for expecting that every citizen is um, is up to some crime. And most of the time, the police drive around and they look around at people on the street and they think every single one of these people is committing a crime I just can't tell. Right. There is a crime happening. They're just not in the right place to see it. Mm-hmm. Yet. The person has not yet revealed the crime. Because that's the natural assumption if you're not being taught that your job is to go in and defuse situations and that workplace safety stuff and that union stuff then creates within police a sense that everybody's out also out to get them because everybody in the city that's like, well, wait a minute, why did you kill that kid? And you say, what do you mean? I thought he had a gun. Well, he didn't have a gun. He had a mouse. A mouse doesn't look anything like a gun. <laughs> Well, I, he pulled it out and I thought it was a gun. I don't know what else to tell you. I felt unsafe. And the people are like, you've got to be kidding me. What are we paying you for? If not to tell the difference between a mouse and a gun, the cop, and then all of his buddy cops, they, they've been fed hook, line and sinker that this is a, that this is a safety issue for them. And that all these people are mad at them, but those people have no idea what it's like out there in the streets day in and day out trying to tell mice from guns. (laughs) And so 
it further widens that gap of of common cause mm-hmm. and suddenly you've got a group of police that feel like this not only is the city full of criminals who are their sworn enemies but they are criminals who are masquerading as politicians who want them to be unsafe who want to see them killed by all these gun carrying kids gun carrying mouse owning kids and that is that is a reciprocating like misunderstanding or, or, um, or, you know, like misapprehension of the world that only it's Ouroboros. It only makes itself worse with every next iteration. So each, so when the, you know, when Seattle finally said, we don't even know what to do with our own cops. Like we can't, they're out of control. And the federal government came in and said, well, we have to take over this problem. It did not make the cops say, wow, we, we should really take a hard look at ourselves. All they said was, now we're also at war with the feds. Everybody hates us and they're all wrong because they have no idea what it's like on the streets. And obviously, we have a cultural problem in America, which is that the people, because the police are like this, the people that want to be police typically are not coming from a, um, typically not coming from like the, the linguistics departments of universities. You know, people go into policing who want to, um, who want to model the people that they see policing the streets. And if you watch people police the streets who are officious and <clears throat> mean or just not uh, – who aren't there to play or who aren't there to ask questions, who aren't there to um, solve disputes but are there to enforce, are there to um, decide, you know – if that if if that's what you see when you're growing up and trying to decide what job you want, the people who like to enforce are going to say, "I think I want to be police." And the people who are like, "I like to solve problems," are going to go, "Boy, I sure don't think the police is where I belong." And it just reinforces itself over time until I and I think the police academies have plenty of things, plenty of policies to try and weed sociopaths out of the academy process. Um, but I don't think they, I don't think they submit like a 10 week battery of tests to people to say, if a kid had a mouse yeah, no. and you just didn't like him and wanted to shoot him, what do you think you would do? Uh, just to get, you know, to find those people that are like, I probably want to shoot him anyway. Cause he's a stupid kid. Like those ones, the ones that post on Facebook now, those pictures, there was a guy that got fired the other day who posted a picture of himself in riot gear on his Facebook page. It was like, let's go start a riot. (laughs) And it's like, Hey, you're fired. And he had only graduated from the police Academy like six months before. Uh If you can imagine. And the thing is, he's not, he didn't go, he's not sitting in his house right now. Like, Oh fuck. I really am. I really did that poorly. He's sitting in his house right now going, fucking system and the politicians and the blacks, you know, screwed me. 
And there are plenty of people in this country. I, I bet you there's a, there's some sheriff's office right now that's calling that guy up going, we'll give you a job. We're not one of those pussy big city cop organizations that fires you for a hilarious Facebook post. You know, it's just, it's the, it's the cultural divide in the country at that yeah, point. Yeah. So Seattle, which could have, I mean, the, you gotta love it when you're here, when you're up on Capitol Hill and you you encounter some cops and they're young and they're gay and they are still cops. <laughs> and you're like, now wait a minute. Like you're a young gay person who came up in, in the world. And I'm not saying that being gay naturally makes you an, a, a liberal, but it surely affects somewhat your view of policing in a gay neighborhood. Doesn't it? Doesn't it just, I don't know, shape it a little, like maybe just, just culturally somehow you would be a little more gay right now and a little less cop. Hmm. But no, the copness becomes the absolute primary blood who, regardless of who you are, it's why, you know, it's why black cops in St. Louis can sit and shoot black kids in St. Louis based on kind of no other problem than the kid was black because they, they become cops in their hearts, mm-hmm. they become heart cops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and when I ran for city council, it, I went in like a lot of people go into politics thinking that these were problems that just needed to be worked out mm-hmm. because clearly the police did not want to be at odds with the city. Right. Clearly, you know, the, the, the new chief of police seems like a very reasonable person. I really like them. We worked hard as a city to find you know, we searched for a new chief of police for a year and a half and we finally picked this person and it's a, it's a woman of color or it's a, you know, like really making all those efforts. And we have the community really wants to be engaged in the police, uh, in, in like community review. And we have all these suggestions, like, why don't we have neighborhood watch? Why don't we have neighborhood meetings where we um, where citizen comments get taken into consideration as the police make policy. And all of that is happening all the time in a city like Seattle. There's so many people working all the time, not to reform the police in a big way, although that's happening, but to reform the police in little ways. Why don't you just have the neighborhood police come over and have coffee with us sometime and get to know us or you know why? And, and, and Seattle had bike cops. We were where bike cops were invented. The first police ever on, on bikes in the United States were here in Seattle. Bike cops. Bike cops. And bike cops were going to solve things because they were on bikes. How can you be on a bike and not be having a little bit more fun than driving around in a car? You can get to places. You can chase bad guys down staircases. You can, you know, you're action oriented. You're fit. You're not some fatso that's like, you know, eating donuts and can't chase a criminal. You're like a young zoom bike cops. 
And none of it worked because all of that stuff came up against the, like the tangled knot of policies and contracts, basically, where the union said, well, we have a contract that says that we don't have to do that because, you know, that, because the, the cops are our, are the thin blue line that protect us from anarchy. And honestly, no conservative politician, and by that I mean all the way up to um, three quarters of the way up into the to the Democrats. Uh, you know, conservative being everybody that's a Republican, and then and then half of the people that are Democrats are never going to come out and say that they're truly against the police because there's just no political expedience to it. It does not help them at all. It doesn't help them get elected. Because all all the people protesting in the streets, all the people that are against the police, there's still still a a small fraction of the population and and, and a smaller fraction of the voting population. So all those politicians are just doing just doing an absolute brute force calculation: Is this going to help me with my constituents if I come out really hard against the police? And the answer is never. Mm-hmm. So. With with a portion of their of their constituents, those constituents are concerned. They want to see some action with the police. This is the thing about Democrats and even liberal Republicans. They want to see some change. They want to see some action. They want to hear that the police are going to be better. And so we have all these reform policies. We have these committee meetings. We have this community policing conversation. We hire a new chief of police. Who's a woman of color. We elect a mayor who promises police reform. They're doing everything you could possibly do to make it right. Yes, but it is all performance, but it's a, it is sufficient performance for, for, uh, for every, uh, sort of liberal Republican and sufficient performance for most Democrats. So the, to actually reform the police means to go hard against them and to go hard against the idea that they are a labor organization and to go hard against the idea that, uh, or to go hard against the tradition that they have of making their own rules and to basically like dismantle them in a profound way a dis- and dismantle them while they're fighting you tooth and nail. Not only they're fighting you tooth and nail, but every police organization in the country is fighting you tooth and nail. And the whole constellation of gun people and the law and order types in Washington like if Seattle went hard against their police department and said, we're going to do this over, we're going to start over. We're taking the police department apart into some constituent parts. Mm-hmm. We're going to build a community policing organization. We're going to take all of the hyper militarized body armor and riot tanks and, you know, combat helmets and all of this tear gas and everything. We're going to throw it in the ocean and, we're starting over with a new idea about policing here. There's not 
a politician in America that wouldn't have something to say about it. And and uh, it doesn't have to be Trump. If I mean the the most liberal president you could think of is going to say, "Whoa, now, whoa, wait a minute here." You know, that's not a thing that Obama would have said. Good idea. And so you would have to go hard against the concept of police while everyone in the world was fighting you in order to reform the organization. And honestly, all the riots in the world, an entire generation, if every single millennium voted the same way, if they voted completely as a block, and they grew up to be 40-year-olds who continued to vote completely as a, as a socialist block, they would not have the power to fight all the police in the world or all the police in America, right? And, right. and the police have designed it that way. They've des- absolutely designed it that way. And all the, the thing is there's, there's so much evidence, not just theory, but evidence that the harder your police get, the more crime they, what, find or instigate. Mm-hmm. You know, they instigate it. Mm-hmm. They're busting kids for doing nothing. And it goes up on their statistics. And then they can point to it and say, there are 7,500 incidents of violent crime in Seattle. It's like, really? You mean the time that you told that kid to take the mouse out of his pocket and he didn't understand you and you threw him on the ground? And arrested him for resisting arrest. Is that up on that statistic too? Because it seems like those statistics are a little padded. You're finding in here the, the ride cops, the situation every, every night for the last week. People go down, they protest, they say cops are too violent. Cops show up on the other side with four foot long billy clubs, tear gas rifles, flashbang grenades, beanbag guns. Mm. But, but even more, <clears throat> like those suits that they wear. The helmets, then the chest plates. Yeah. It's like football padding combined with like the type of padding you would wear if you were uh, learning like a martial art with the bamboo swords. (laughs) Yeah. All the way down to like these super hyper reinforced, like they've got skateboard elbow pads and then they've got hockey pants and they've got shit down on their boots that keep their ankles They've got like caps on their boots. I mean, they're cool outfits. If you, if you were going into, for instance, a neighborhood stick fight arena. Uh huh. Now, a neighborhood stick fight arena, where people from different neighborhoods squared off to settle neighborhood disputes by sending their most aggro local citizen into the gladiator arena to fight their neighbors to the death with sticks. Those those would be amazing outfits for that combat performance, which I heartily endorse, (laughs) but that's a bad outfit to wear when you're, when you're faced off against a, against a bunch of people who have, whose only armor is their dreadlocks or worse, you know, whose only armor is their pinafore because they're just normals. You know, they're regular citizens who are like, what the, I, I need to go down and do something here. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to meet, meet those people head on in those outfits. Give me a break. 
it incites violence. They, it's a the, what we've been seeing the last week is one hundred percent a police-inspired s- set of riots. Yeah. But the uh, the idea that the protests are going to change the institution, the thing is that it might in ways that ultimately will feel insufficient, right? How, we, how uh, will it, the, what, what do you think could happen from that? Where do you think that goes? Police culture is, in most cases, I think now, like out of reach of reform. You can't get there. You can fire the police chief and the captain that's under the police chief maybe won't get promoted to chief. You'll find a chief from somewhere else. You'll find a chief with a master's degree in public policy who has a twirly mustache or who has pictures of himself playing with his kids and dogs, you know, or um, like finding police chiefs, which are political jobs you're you're basically just finding the you're you're picking from the police officers in the country who were the smartest and the most ambitious and who rose through their departments until they got into the into a sort of public facing job and then they were smart and they were sensitive and they they figured out how to work the system and they figured out how to to do that very tricky job of communi- of talking to their own officers in a way that engendered trust, which means going into those rooms and saying basically like, I know they want us to all wear feathered caps and we're not going to do it, but I've got to go tell them we are. So, you know, between us, it's like that. Mm-hmm. And the cops go right on boss. You go, you go tell them, you go tell them what they want to hear. And then the, then the cop goes and stands in front of a microphone and goes, we're going to really look into this feathered hat idea that you've come up with. I think it's, you know, we're going to take it under advisement and uh, we agree that something needs to happen. Those are the people that turn into police chiefs and they might even believe that the, uh, at a certain point they might get up there and spend enough time in politics that they're like, actually the feathered hat thing kind of would, would work. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I got to sell it to my people and I know that as soon as I try, I'm going to lose their faith forever because as soon as I go in and go, I've been thinking about this feathered, feathered hat thing, the cops are going to go traitor. Right. And then it's over. That happens one time and it's over. The the police chief never gets their trust back again because it's such an insulate insular culture, right? It's like you're with us or against but you can fire police chiefs all day and lo- all day long. What happens down at the down in the ranks is, you know, it's the sergeant. It, the lieutenant goes to the sergeant and says, "All right, I got to put on these feathered hats. I'm, I don't make the rules. You just got to do it." And then the lieutenant goes back to his desk, and the sergeant turns to his people and goes, "Here's what we're going to do. When you pull over and you get out of your car, have a feather." Put it up there like it is in your hat for a second and then throw it on the ground and start kicking ass. 
And the cops are like, yeah. I mean, all you have to do is, is watch The Wire. That's what they're, you know, and, and, and on The Wire, like all those characters are our heroes, right? They're our friends. We follow them through several seasons of The Wire, you know, wishing them the best. But, but they never, the cops in The Wire are never like, we should, we should help these kids, you know, or they barely do. Do I think that a lot came out of the civil rights movement, the, the protests, the, uh, nonviolent confrontation with police, the, you know, at primarily what happened was the civil rights act that happened at the level of the, of the presidency and the Congress. Mm -hmm. But, in terms of police, what we're seeing the police do today is the same stuff we saw the police do in 1962 or 1958. It's the same. They're not turning dogs on people anymore because they realized that was a really bad look. Mm-hmm. And they haven't used any fire hoses lately either. And the, all of that is because they've got a lot more tear gas and flash bomb grenades. I mean, the stuff that they're using now is no more humane than fire hoses and dogs, frankly. But the cop reaction is the same. Show up with helmets on, stand shoulder to shoulder in a big line, and at a certain point, it kicks off because of some nothing. Some kid waves an umbrella at them too many times and they're like, fuck you. Or the, you know, that the cop that said yesterday, or I read it this morning where he said, well, you know, we had to do a calculation when this riot was going to start. And so we just decided that we needed to start it now because if we didn't start it now, it was probably going to start sometime later. It's like, oh, sure. But so there's a civil rights act. I mean, all of the stuff that those protests accomplished in the fifties and sixties, all of the the rioting that happened in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the Watts riots, the Rodney King riots, um, those riots produced a lot of awareness. um, But the cops in the Rodney King beating we're doing the same exact stuff that the cops did that are, the cops are doing today. And they have the same looks on their faces of just like, <laughs> check it out. Fucking kicking this guy's ass. And so whatever the Rodney King riots produced, whatever the Watts riots produced, whatever the, all that nonviolent protest all through the fifties and sixties produced, it did not produce any, friendly, responsive police who think twice, who ask questions, who roll up on situations and try to defuse them. Um, Do you think there's something, John, just about being a cop that over time puts you into a certain mindset and that inevitably all the people who are in that line of work eventually pick up that mindset. Is that possible? 
For, oh, for sure. I mean, the it's that a like mindset. If you, if you spend, I remember I used to have a um, a high school teacher, and he uh, was like the health class, and he used to say all the time, he's like, "If you smoke, you will get cancer." He's like, "It, it how long it takes you to get it." That varies. It's like, but if you <laughs> right. do it, eventually could be it, a thousand years. Right. It might. It might be longer than you'll live. But if you if you do it and don't stop doing it and do it enough, and is it is it almost? And you know, I agree with him. Like you said, it might it might take a hundred years to do that, but eventually, right? And so, is this the same kind of thing? Like, if you are a cop, eventually, you you feel that way. You believe that. If you are a cop, you, it, it's not even eventually. Look, there's a, the, the, the thing around drug policy, marijuana policy is a good example. Most police, in my experience, didn't, and I'm talking about back when pot was illegal everywhere. Yeah. Most police did not personally think that pot smoking was that big of a deal. Cops had a lot of time on the street dealing with people. They knew what pot smoking was. Mm-hmm. They saw pot smoking every single day. And they recognized that people that were smoking pot were not that big of a deal. Somebody that was stoned on pot was not dangerous. Pot did not inspire people to fight. It did not make them resist the law the money that was being exchanged in pot deals was on the order of 20 to 50 dollars so it did not engender a ton of violent crime right very 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 few people got shot because a pot deal went right I, I wonder how many people in history have 95 percent of pot deals that go wrong somebody's like Hey, give me 20 bucks. Here's your weed. And then they hand them a bag of green toilet paper uh-huh. <laughs> or some, or, or, or generally most of the time it's like shitty weed or right. like it, the bag's a little light and the person buying the pot goes, Hey man. Oh dude, you ripped me off. <laughs> and the pot dealer I'm not is buying either from all, you again. Yeah. The dealer is like already running down the street mm-hmm. or stands there and goes like, I didn't rip you off. What's your problem? I bought pot from a guy that I had known for five years as a friend on the street. Like, you know, he was a street dealer dude that hung out in the cafe and was just, you know, local, local low life. And I was a local low life and I came up with 10 bucks one time and I ran into him and I was like, Hey, I want to buy some weed. And he was like, I got some weed, dude. Uh, give me 10 bucks and I'll go get it. And I was like, oh, man, that's not how it works. You know that. And he was like, come on, bro. You know, it's just over. I got to talk to this dude and he doesn't want to like meet any strangers, man. And I was like, all right, here's the 10 bucks. And he ran off and I didn't see him again. (laughs) And I and this was a guy I saw every day. (laughs) And what's crazy is I never saw him again. Right. He never came into the cafe. I never saw him again for ten (laughs) dollars. But, you know, my oh, attitude man. was like, oh, man, hey, bro, that's not cool. Why right. would you rip me off? And right. It's just like, fuck you. The cops know that. They've always known it. And because I'm a white dude, 
And a white dude that looks like he went, like a white dude that basically looks like he flunked out of the police academy is what I look like. You love, you love thinking that you look like a cop. I don't, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> I just don't think that's, that's not like, do you think that, that like for lack of a, I'll use, I'll use the term of our generation, John, that druggies look at you and think you look like a cop. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reason, <laughs> Cause the reason I don't I see it. I don't that, think you look like a cop. I think you look, you look fine. <laughs> the reason I think that is that in the in the years that I was, you know, in a street culture, mm-hmm. I walked into situations all the time where where I didn't know the people I was walking in on. Yeah, and they would and say they would say cop. They would say cop, right? And I would say. Hey, bros, I'm not a cop. Or most of the time it would be the person that was bringing me into that situation would be like, dudes, dudes, he's cool. He's cool. He's with me. And the, you know, and the, whatever the guy (laughs) sitting at the head of the table would be like, are you sure, man? Cause I don't like the looks of this guy. And I'd be like, you guys, I'm just here to get high. I'm not like looking for trouble. I'm not a cop or anything, (laughs) but it helped me on the street a lot because there were just situations where, there would be trouble between people and it would be a situation that was getting extremely sketchy really fast. And then I would be the element that they didn't know what to do with. You know, I would be the stranger that looked just a little too square and fit and blonde and other. Hmm. And I, I just, I heard the word cop all the time and I used it. I used it. Now I don't think that cops looked at me and thought cop, but I've told you that story during the WTO protests in in 99, where I walked around dressed like a cop and everybody believed I was a cop, including some of the cops. Right. But the thing about, about cops and pot is a kind of good it's a good lens because multiple times police came into an environment I was in where there was pot present, but the cops came in for a different reason. They came in because someone had reported that there was a fire. They came in because someone had reported a burglary. They came in because they were, um, you, uh, someone in the neighborhood had heard a loud explosion and they were going door to door and asking people what they thought about it. Like over and over, I got pulled over and the car was full of weed. Um, like over and over in the course of the 15 years that I did drugs, I, ca- I came into situations where the cops sort of appeared out of nowhere and we were all either in the middle of smoking pot or there was pot paraphernalia everywhere. There was smoke hanging in the air. I had a bunch of police come like tear assing into a backyard of a house where I lived, where we were growing weed in the backyard and Uh it was fall and it had been a wonderful season and the pot plants were 15 feet high and there were, um, there was a, 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 a literal like little cops of, of trees that were the most beautiful, 
beautiful buds you'd ever seen. Big, sticky, purple buds. And orange, covered with orange hair. Like, just been phenomenal. And we had just trimmed the trees and thrown the kind of, you know, just the leaf, the leaf litter, which still comprised a big pile of, of, uh, leaves that in times past you would have stuffed into big gallon, um, or paper sacks and sold for 10 bucks as like ditch weed. Right. And we just had so much weed at the time that we were like, we're fat and happy. This was at the time in my life where I was still on drugs, but was starting to interact. I was still spending a lot of time with scumbags, but I was also, I had met enough people that were like edging into middle-class drug people, Mm -hmm. you know, people that weren't buying drugs on the street people that weren't scrounging for drugs, people that bought pot an ounce at a time or right. a quarter pound at a time. Oh, nice. I was like, well, I know I'm going to smoke this weed, so I'm going to get a QP. It's like a QP. Wow. Can I just see it? Can I just hold it in my hands? <laughs> but then, you know, but then also I was on a downward trajectory. So I was also going to a third location with a, with a, you know, with a speed freak. Right. I was not. I was not headed to being a like calm middle-class drug user. We would like to say thank you very much to Brooke Lennon. You know, sometimes a small change can turn into a huge lifestyle change. You could start waking up five minutes earlier each week. It'll turn 8 a.m. into 6.30 a.m. It sounds early, doesn't it? But that's the way you make a change. You start with something small, and that can lead to a positive lifestyle change. You can get a new towel and it turns your bathroom into a spa. You can get new bedding and it turns your bedroom into a retreat. I'm serious about this. I love the Brooklyn and sheets. I think they're the best. I don't know what it is about them, but it's maybe it's the attention to detail, like the little tag on the side that shows you which side is the long side and which side is the short side for that undersheet. Like, yeah, we can figure it out, but why not put a little tag there? It doesn't take much time for them and it really does help us out. It's little things like that. The quality of the sheets are amazing, but they do more than just bedding over at Brooklyn and they do loungewear now. They do towels and they've got over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. You know, I didn't realize that you could have that kind of luxury sheet experience at home. Whenever I go to a a really nice hotel or one of my friend's houses who's got a lot of money, they always seem to have really nice sheets. And I thought, yeah, maybe one day. Well, that one day is now. Brooklyn and brings these amazing bedding, sheets, loungewear, towels, all of this to you. They cut out the middleman and they sell it directly to you. That's the genius of it. There's no middleman, just a great product and a great service. You're getting all luxury products without the luxury markup. And like I said, they've moved beyond the bedroom. Now they have bathroom and life essentials as well. Towels, shower curtains, bath mats, robes, even candles for that extra touch. It's great. They do it all. Brooklinen.com. This is a perfect place to start to make those small changes into big differences in your life. They're so confident in their product that all of their sheets, comforters, loungewear, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. So go on, make yourself comfortable, and you're going to get 10% off your first order with free shipping when you use the promo code ROADWORK, one word, 
at brooklinen.com. Let me just spell that for you. It's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N, brooklinen.com. Everything you need to live your most comfortable life. And don't forget that promo code, 10% off your first order and free shipping. Promo code's roadwork. Thanks so much to Brooklinen for making this show possible. But the cops came running into the backyard with the fire department because of something that was happening over the back fence. And they poured in there, and we're sitting in lawn chairs with sunglasses on, just high as fuck. (laughs) Basically sitting in a forest of pot plants. (laughs) And our fire pit is full of pot leaves, the most identifiable of all plant leaves. Yes. And the cops and the firemen look over the fence and they realized that whatever they were chasing or whatever it was that they were looking for wasn't there. And they turn around and some of them, you know, like a, a few of the cops kind of jog out of the backyard, but the firemen and a, and a few more cops turn around and kind of talking to each other and like apologizing to us and kind of sauntering out. And the fireman stops and goes, is this a fire pit? <clears throat> and we're like, Yeah. And fireman's like, oh, well, okay, let's just take a look here. You know, um, I guess you're, you know, 10 feet from the fence and looks good. And he's surveying this fire pit that's heaped with marijuana oh my God. branches. Oh, my God. And the firemen are sitting and looking at it. Yeah, it looks good. I mean, over here, you could probably put a few, like a little ring of rocks to make it, you know, just in, in, enclose it a little bit more. Oh and we're God. like, we're like, <laughs> Totally, totally. And the cops are standing there and they're, you know, they're, they're like standing in the pot plants and they're like, okay, well, you know, have a good day. Like, you know, put that ring of rocks there. Like we say, and we're like, bye, bye dudes, (laughs) you know, (laughs) peace out and stuff. Yeah. And off they go. Right. They don't give a shit about pot. I had definitely, I've had, I've had cops say like where I was like frantically trying to hide the fucking paraphernalia yeah cops are like hey look i'm not worried about your pot i'm here about this other thing and i've told the story about getting pulled over by the alaska state trooper who was like what's under the blanket and we were like fuck, it's this giant bong and they're like all right well we don't care about you smoking pot it actually makes you a better driver but i'm i'm not allowed to like let you leave here with this huge box of pot dumped it on the ground and then ran and drove off now if i had been black in any one of those situations, that would have gone a completely different way from me. Yeah, I agree. Every single time there was not a single one of those instances that I would have not been prosecuted for those drugs or had those drugs used as a pretext to tear my house apart. Right. I agree. Had those drugs used as a pretext to uh, run my license to handcuff me and put me out on the sidewalk where I would stand for a half an hour in handcuffs in front of all my neighbors, you know, pressed against the hood of a car while they tossed my, my bedroom. Mm-hmm. And if I'd gotten busted for it, that would have been a drug bust. And even if it had turned out that it was that they'd busted me for less than whatever their their crime threshold was that, uh, you know, that it was a misdemeanor bust or it was a something like that. Right. They would have pursued it through the courts and then I would have had a drug bust 
And then the next time it happened and they put me in handcuffs and threw me against the front of the police car, they would have searched and they would have discovered that I had a prior. And then this time, even though it was below the threshold, they would have taken me in and I would have been prosecuted and it would have been now, now I'm a habitual offender. Mm-hmm. And this, there are so many instances in my life where if I had been prosecuted for the one thing, when I, when the next thing happened, oh, it would have been would that have, much worse. It would have been that. It would have been worse. Right. That's. And during the three strikes years, I would open the newspaper and read stories about because they loved that three strike stuff, and they'd be like, "We another kid got sent up the river for thirty years because it was his third strike." And I would read the list of strikes and say, "Like, well, I did all three of those strikes mm-hmm. many times." Mm-hmm. Like the first strike was a stolen car, but it actually was his grandmother's car. He stole, he stole his grandmother's car and his grandmother wanted to press charges because she wanted to teach him a lesson or his grandmother didn't want to press charges, but the cops were going to press charges anyway because they felt like he needed to learn a lesson. And so then he's got, then he's got a grand theft auto. Or, you know, or, 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 you know, maybe they, they bump it down to like first degree theft or something. And then the second one was breaking and entering, but it was his friend's house and he broke in and got caught. And then the friend had some weed. And so it was all a big bust. The friend didn't want him prosecuted, but the cops, you know, and then the third one was some kind of traffic infraction or whatever. It's just like so many people got sent away. Yeah. For all this chicken shit, little nothing, nothing stuff, stuff, stuff that I did all the time, stuff that I did and got caught and got, and, and, you know, this is, this is the, the, the like most glaring example of how my white middle classness protected me like a shield, like a, like a like a, like a bulletproof shield mm-hmm. because I got caught and released all the time. Like, Oh, you know, we're going to let you go this time. And even the times that I got caught and taken to jail and booked and prosecuted and had to go to court through that, through that entire process, every person I interacted with was nice to me. The cops that busted me and put me in handcuffs and put me in the back of the car were like, well, you fucked up this time. I got to do this. You know, I don't want to, but I got no choice. I got to take you downtown. And I was like, oh, man. They're like, look, you know, I got you dead to rights. I can't let you off. Drive me down. And the, the cop that's booking me in is like, let me see your thumbs, you know. What'd you get busted for? Oh, really? That's pretty stupid. And then I get put in the jail cell and I sit there looking out through the bars and every cop that walks by, I say, Hey, I've been in here for a while. Is there something going on? And they would say over their shoulder, we'll let you know. Sometimes I'd be in there for six hours. Sometimes I, a couple of times I was overnight. And then when they take you out in the morning, they're like, we're letting you go or, your friend came and paid your bail. Here's your court date. 
And then when I showed up at the court, it was the same thing. Well, this seems like a small infraction, but you've got to learn sometime. All that. Yeah. No one ever threw, no cop in my life ever threw me anywhere. Right. Two times a cop hit me with a, with a billy club. One time I was sleeping in Grand Central Station God. in New York City <laughs> and a cop came along and whacked me on the leg and said, this isn't the goddamn Hilton. And uh, I jumped up and was like, you know, yes, sir. And he was like, can't fucking sleep in the train station. And I was like, you can't sleep in the train station. The train station is the number one place you sleep. <laughs> that's that's where you, where I go to sleep. And he said, "Do you, are you taking a train somewhere? Because it's two o'clock in the morning and there are no trains going anywhere. Why, you know, it's a place you sleep if you're like between trains and you're in Utrecht. But it's, I mean, he's not saying this. This is just what he said was move along. But you know, it's the, it's the difference between America and Europe. If you're, if you're sitting in, in the train station in Utrecht to sleep on your backpack, it's very different than if you're curled up in Grand Central Station with your fucking, you know, half bottle of 10 high whiskey. And then the other time I got hit by a cop with a stick was sleeping on a park bench. And it was another situation where a cop on the beat came along, whacked me on the leg with a stick and said, you can't sleep here. Otherwise... Every time I've been arrested, it was, I was treated with the utmost respect, frankly. And I'm talking about, I mean, how many times have I been put in handcuffs, put in a cop yeah, car? How and many, taken now I'm curious, down, how many times have you been? Six times. Mm. Six times. Six, six times. One, two, three, seven times. One time I went to the court. I went up to the window where you're supposed to pay the fine or whatever. Uh -huh. And I, but it was because the court had sent me a letter saying that they had some money for me. They had some money that had been <clears throat> forfeited or something or, or some bail I had paid at one point and I was getting back. This letter actually came to me in the mail. And I, so I went to the cashier and I said, uh, I handed the letter through the thing because <clears throat> the letter said like, bring the letter. It's like, Hey, I, I, um, you know, I guess, guess you guys have got some money for me. And the woman behind the glass said, yeah, take this letter across the street. There's a storefront over there that says like refunds and just go in there and they'll, they'll help you. And I was like, Oh, and I'm in the courthouse. Mm-hmm. So I take my letter and I walk out through the security and walk across the street and over across the street, kitty corner, there's a, there's a row of 1880 storefronts. And I knew the building because we had filmed a independent film upstairs in this old hotel and the building was abandoned. It was right across from where the, the new city hall is now it had been abandoned, but it was a, it was a beautiful building and it was being restored or, I mean, it was being preserved and these storefronts across the street had like soaped up windows. Like you couldn't see in the windows, right. but they were floor to ceiling windows. It was like, a, it was a beautiful, um, 
19th century building. So I walk across the crosswalk and I'm looking at the building. And I'm like, huh. I, I mean, it's I've been in that building. Interesting. They, this must be some, you know, some some project where they're giving money back to the people. Right. And I cross over and then I see one of the windows has a sign in it that says refunds or whatever. And I go and I open the door and it's an old glass fronted wooden door that when I open it, it goes ding. Uh-huh. And I walk in and it's like the set of Barney Miller. There are, <laughs> there are five or six metal like government issued desks arranged in a kind of haphazard manner and sitting at the desks and sitting on the desks, like, you know, kind of one butt cheek up on the desk, right? Elbow on the knee, right? Chatting and drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes are 15 cops and they are cops. They are the, they're the tough cops. These are not the, these are not like the skinny recruits. These are like detectives, Okay. but they're the kind of detectives that have like 20 inch necks. They're not the smart cops. <laughs> and I open this door and I'm standing there silhouetted, silhouetted in the door. And then what's crazy about it is they had the lights off. So the room was illuminated by the by the light coming in through the soaped glass. Okay. But there was like haze and dust, and I don't know if it was so long ago. I think it was cigarette smoke. The room was really hazy, and I opened the door, standing there, you know, like the customer I was, mm-hmm. and realized, oh, fuck. I had fallen. Right. This is one of those, one those of, scams where they get the criminals to come in because they think they've got their free, um, their free redeem. Yeah. You, you've won the thing. It 100% was. Oh my God. And, the, and this room full of cops, <clears throat> they all have big smiles on their faces. And the guy closest to me, you know, slides his butt off the desk and goes, hi, can I help you? Let me see your paper. And I was like, oh, I've got somewhere else to be. And he was like, come on in. Oh, my God. Shut the door, put his arm around me. And it turned out that I had, um, you know, <laughs> I had, there'd been a bench warrant for my arrest. I had missed the hearing. The bench warrant turned into a, you know, to like a warrant. And it, at each time, like the, the, um, at each time, the fine, doubled and quadrupled and whatnot because, and this, this was a, you know, this was this old fucking case from four years before. And I'd showed up having lost track of what all had happened. And I knew I'd paid bail on myself a couple of times. And it's entirely possible at one point I paid $900 to get out of jail. Mm -hmm. It was entirely possible that they had 600 bucks or whatever waiting for me. And what they had was a warrant for my arrest. Mm -hmm. And they sat me in this place and they all crowded around and they're just this wall of meat and they're laughing. They love this. This is the best thing they've ever thought of. Send these letters out to a bunch of dopes. And I'm sure one after another guys come in, ding, I'm here for my refund. And they're like, oh man. And some of them are bad guys, you know, right? Yeah, busted. And they look at my warrant and they look at me and they say, 
All right. Go back across the street to the to the courthouse and she's going to tell you when your court date is and she's going to you're going to have to pay some amount of money. You know, they like they they evaluated me and even having snared me in their ruse. Right. They realized you're a nonviolent offender. You're a white dude in his mid twenties. That's got a sense of humor about this. Like everything about you is not what we care about. And they let me go. And it was at that point that I realized I needed to fucking solve this problem. And so I went to the, I did all the things I went, I made, met all my court dates. I, pled out on the crime i paid the fines i like got i got i put it behind me right i did i i did all the bullshit that i'd been fighting but the fact that they snared me and still gave me a pat on the butt and said get out of here we're we're fishing for bigger fish than you but if i'd been black not in a million years, probably would they have done that. And half mm-hmm. the cops in the room were black. It's just that they would have, well, I would have had other priors. And at that point I did have priors. Mm-hmm. They would have seen a habitual pattern of scoff law in me. What's fortunate for me is I never got busted for drugs. Cops pull drugs out of me all the time. Oh, well, well, I would just assume this was all for drugs. What was it for? No, it was for. There's a couple of trumped up charges. Um, You know, some breaking and entering. Some public intoxication, some vandalism, some property destruction. Um trespassing, you know, all the penny Annie shit that goes along with being, and I, you know, I, I, I do not describe myself as a street person because that of course means a different thing, right. but a person that is living primarily on the street. I didn't really have places to go. I didn't have stuff to do. I was part of the street culture. I was out every day hustling, trying to get high, trying to find where the next thing was interacting with people that were also doing that. A lot of people trying to make money in that economy. I was much more in on the other side of the economy, which was like trying to find stuff without money, right? Trying to like figure out how to get by without money, without, you know, and I I didn't have ID at the time. And so I was living in a world where I was kind of idealist, okay. which cops really don't like, you know, when they, when they nab you, they're like, show me your ID. And you're like, I don't have any ID. That's not a sign that you're, you're playing along, but all of that stuff, it's like, how hard is it to, tr- to, to, uh, charge somebody with trespassing? Like there's trespassing where you're dressed head to toe in a black Catwoman outfit and carrying a pry bar <laughs> and you're caught on the third floor balcony of a, of right, a French right, chateau. Right, right. And there's trespassing where you're just sitting in front of a place and somebody comes along and says, you can't sit there. And you're like, fuck you. And they come back and they're like, you can't sit there. I said, and you're like, it's a fucking public street. Go to, go to hell. And then the next person that comes along is a cop. 
who got called by the, you know, by the Karen who right. was living, who was inside the door and the cops like, let me see some ID. And then you don't have ID. And then they're like, okay, well, let's talk about this now. Like that kind of just the, just normal police harassment causing crime. You know, I was, I was a sleaze. I didn't leave when the lady told me to leave, but also what she's telling me to leave. Cause she's a shitty person or whatever. Doesn't want somebody sitting in her, in front of her store. And she knows she can call the cops. And so instead of coming out and saying, here's a dollar, will you go somewhere else? Um, she says, I'm going to call the cops. I'm going to show you and whatever spends $2,500 of the taxpayer's money to, to show this guy that he can't sit on the sidewalk in front of her store. It's a cultural problem that wouldn't happen in a lot of places because they wouldn't have the cops to call. And so they would say, get out of here. And they would either say, get out of here. And you would say, okay, or or, I mean, you know, what they would do is they would either say, get out of here, by which they meant my friend who is bigger than you is going to kick your ass if you don't, which is an absolutely viable way of maintaining polite society. The guy that lived, that that owns the shop next to me and the guy that owns the shop on the other side of me are going to come out and throw you in the gutter if you don't move like I ask. That's a, that's a way yeah, no, of getting somebody you. to move. Coming out and saying like, here's a dollar, uh, here's a dollar for you to go find another place to be. Now, let me ask you a question about that. If, if someone were to give you a dollar to leave, don't you think they'd be encouraging you to come back the next day? Cause you know, you'll get a dollar if you show up and they want you to go. No, I don't think so. I mean, okay. you know, at the point at which you show up a second time and sit there waiting for your dollar yeah. at that point, you are extorting them. And I think most people on both sides of that equation would recognize that that was a violation of street code. Uh-huh. Here's a dollar. Go fuck off is a nice way of saying uh, is a nice way of bridging the gap between somebody saying, this is my shop. You can't sit on the sidewalk here. And somebody on the other side, whose instinct is to say, it's a free country. You can't tell me what to do. Right. The dollar is a gesture of like, and I'm not saying that I ever got a dollar or gave a dollar in this respect, but the dollar is, is it's basically a stand in for be nice, talk nice, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. It's just like, it's like kneel down and say, I'm running a flower shop here. And most of my customers are ladies and you are scaring them. Or what, whatever, a, a human encounter rather than just like get off or I'll call the cops. And the only reason we have that in our culture is that we, that we know that we call the cops and the cops will, why the fuck is a city employee a, a um, like, why does the city provide thugs to come do that kind of small work of like, you can't sit here. When that's a, that's a problem as old as time for 50,000 years, human beings have been sitting down on rocks and there was somebody that's like, that's my rock. <laughs> that's right. Don't sit there. That's my rock. Why are you sitting there? You can't sit there. And until 150 years ago, no one ever was like police. And honestly, a lot of 
a lot of what got done was was just regular thugs. But you know the the idea that that law and order means that we filter all that stuff through an organized police force is a kind of broken mind. Like as a person sitting on the sidewalk who was being told to move along, if the guy from the store next to hers and the guy from the other store on the other side both came out, I'd fucking move along. And it didn't, it never had to turn into anything. Those guys would come out and say, Hey, seriously, she asked you to move along. And I would just do the calculation and go, well, this sucks now. Now I'm not, I'm not mentally ill in a defiant way where <laughs> that kind of pile on makes me stand up and go like, okay, fuckers bring it. Right. Um, and I know that those shopkeepers aren't looking for a stick fight with somebody. And there are times to call the police, but most of the time it doesn't have to go there. Most of the time people can solve their own problems. And that, you know, the, 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 the notion that the, the thing that keeps us from devolving into a Hobbesian nightmare is this, is this one line of valiant cops that are, that are keeping, that are keeping a guy like me sitting on the sidewalk because he doesn't have anywhere to go from turning around and, and rampaging your, your, uh, florist's shop and raping you and burning the block down. That's a fantasy. You know, that's like a, that's like a dark fantasy that people and people love dark fantasies. 